This is Omo. 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 Hello, Omo sapiens. My name is Brandon Godman, and I have hijacked the Omo wagon. Going to take it on a solo cruise, except it's not going to be a solo cruise because I'm going to pick up a friend named Catherine Kidwell, who is no stranger to Omo, but she's been behind the controls because she has been our social media guru, and she's going to hop on with me, and we have a lot of exciting stuff to talk about today. So say hi to Catherine. Hey, Catherine. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Where are you joining us from? Well, currently a closet, but to be more, <laughs> to be less specific, I guess, uh, I'm up around uh, Northern Virginia, kind of like 40 minutes outside of DC. Awesome. A lot of you are probably wondering, well, who is Catherine? How did she get involved with Omo? Well, Catherine is a luthier. And Catherine was brought to the Omo family by Jerry Lynn. And there's a really fun story about how she spent an evening having dinner with Jerry and his family, but that will be something that Catherine or Jerry will have to tell you in person. Um, <laughs> it's just, it, it's I love just, that getting mentioned. <laughs> it's an amazing sitcom scenario, but this is not the sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> You are a very talented luthier, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been traveling around and studying with different luthiers. Yeah, and thank you very much. It's uh, so spent a lot of last year going around country here, mostly around the East Coast of the United States, but a little bit out of the country as well in England and Italy. Wow. But yeah, so I do a lot of traveling up north. I've had the pleasure of getting to work with Stacy Styles, which is like a lovely little eight hour car ride up oh, to Holyoke uh, and back to Virginia where I'm at. And then going up and working with Sarah Peck in Philadelphia, which is another lovely four hours. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's been really nice. It's a lot of traveling. I, I actually don't mind the driving at all now because I get to yeah. listen to audiobooks and podcasts such as <laughs> Omo as yeah. I'm driving along. Great. Well, hopefully you don't do our social media while you're driving. Oh, never. No. Okay. Good, good, good. Not even sarcasm uh, there, but. <laughs> and you attended Oberlin this summer. I did. It was my first year at Oberlin. Cool. Yeah. I got to room with Rosie, which was very oh, nice. Man. We had a little yeah. Airbnb together. You didn't dye each other's hair purple. We did not. Dang. Okay. Well, <laughs> Missed opportunity. Next time. Next time. Next time. So today's episode is going to be about one of the most important parts of the violin, I think. And just, I mean, let's be honest. It's the thing that gets the vibrations from the strings to the instrument. It's the bridge. We have all studied them. We've all fretted over exactly how to cut them and then refretted over, was it good enough? And that one little cut that we maybe went too far on, or maybe that little slip of a knife that made us totally revamp how we were going to finish the bridge. And then we're not going to mention the bridges that are at the bottom of the trash can or the wood pile that we just went 
really way too far off course on. <laughs> Today's episode is, as I've said, it's about bridges. And we're going to explore everything about the bridges. We're going to go on the Oma wagon and meet up with the fantastic Matt Noikos after this break. Oma sapiens. I have with me here today, Jackson Maberry, maker of JG McIntosh Rosinet Oil Varnish. Jackson, what's some advice you have for first-time varnishers out there? Well, the most useful advice I've ever heard on varnishing is to test, test, test. Um, for me, that means having a really clear idea of what you want and then designing a comprehensive experiment to find your way to that goal. Using scraps of wood from the instrument that you're about to finish, you know, cutoffs from sawing out the plate outlines, for example, test every possible variation of your primer, ground, and varnish. Consider all the variables, too, like how each is applied, for example, can have a huge impact as well. Take thorough notes on all of that, and at the end of this process, you'll be able to pick the winning result and replicate it on the instrument. Oh, and uh, follow the directions of whoever manufactured the varnish, too. <laughs> Get your JG McIntosh rosinate oil varnish and other varnishing supplies today by visiting woodfinishingenterprises.com. Search McIntosh. A special thanks to House of Note, a luthier-owned violin shop in the Twin Cities of Minnesota for their support of this episode of OMO. While covering the many demands that we deal with in this industry, from restoration to repairs for players at all levels, House of Note wants you makers to know they sell quite a few modern maker instruments and bows. If you've just done your final setup for your violin and you're looking to hang it in a shop that understands new instruments, look no further than House of Note. Check them out today at houseofnote.com. Between Chicago and the West Coast, you won't find a violin shop with a more finely curated selection of instruments and bows than Claire Givens Violins in Minneapolis. The Givens team is made up of knowledgeable players who take pride in helping their customers find the right instrument or bow. Their international reputation is founded upon a commitment to maintaining high levels of expertise, craftsmanship, and relationships with customers spanning across generations. Every instrument and bow offered at Claire Givens Violins is set up in their very own workshop by an experienced team of restorers and makers under the longtime expert leadership of Douglas Lay. Need a checkup or a more extensive restoration? The workshop is known for its attention to sound and response, and players come from all over for this unmatched level of precision and care. If you're an early music player, check out Dipper Restorations, where world-renowned restorer and scholar Andrew Dipper specializes in the restoration of historical musical instruments and the making of historic replica bows. Need a checkup? Looking for an upgrade? Check out GivenViolins.com. They look forward to seeing you. All right. Welcome back, Homo Sapiens. We are here with Matt Noikos from Grand Rapids Violins, and that's the Grand Rapids of Michigan, right, Matt? Yes. Yeah. Not Minnesota. Not the other ones. Great. Um, Matt is an all-star in the trade. He is a member of the American Federation of Violin and Bow Makers. He's a graduate of the Violin Making School of America in Salt Lake City, frequent contributor and presenter at the VSA, and one of the instructors at the Oberlin Restoration Week. 
Um, Matt went to violin making school. Well, Matt went to music school, music conservatory, then violin making school. Then he made his way out to Raleigh, North Carolina, where he studied with Jerry Passowitz, doing violin resto adjustments, studied deep into the bow world, and basically made his way further to being the all-star he is today. Welcome, Matt. This is your first time on OMO. It is. Uh, that was very kind words. I'm blushing. <laughs> Thanks. Are, are you sure about your summer, your summer tan? Yeah, thanks for uh, making me sound good. Yeah. Um, thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah. So we drug you on here today to talk about bridges. Big topic. Yes. What was the thing that got you going with bridges? When did you start making the transition from just cutting a functional bridge that just moves sound to cutting a bridge that would be an artistically pro-cut bridge? Well, I think... Um, you know, when you start working in the trade, you learn pretty quickly that bridges are a a way that um, it, it's something that is pretty universal. Every instrument needs one. Um, and the way it's cut, you can tell a lot about um, a luthier. You can tell about their tool skills. You can tell about uh, what kind of ideas they have on lines. Um, if and- they're single. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you're if you're very in tune to their bridges, I guess you can tell that too. Um, I don't know what would that be an angry cut. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Maybe I, should, I maybe should take that off. Um, <laughs> anyhow, um, yeah, it's it's something like when I, I pretty much on everything I when I started. I mean, I'm still doing this. Uh, I I want to be the best that I can in this business. Um, I want to push myself to my limits and bridges were something that you have to do uh, all the time. And, um, I wanted to, I I didn't want to just carve a, a functional bridge. I wanted to carve something that was much more than that. So early on, I, I, I pursued it. I pushed myself, um, asked Jerry a lot of questions. I would, uh, bring my, um, bridges up to him and and ask him for critiques. Um, the the first set of critiques were more broad and and then it got to a point where he would just say, "Oh, that's good," and he would just kind of move on because uh, you always had to push Jerry a lot because he was busy and I and I would I would push him. I would say, "No, tell me what what I can do to improve on this." And he would, okay, he put his stuff down and look at it and really really get into the nitty gritty. So I, yeah, I think uh, sometime when I was working there, it's when I, pretty early on, I, I, I wanted to, to cut a nice bridge, you know, pretty much right away, Yeah, um, but it, it's, it's a process. And I, I mean, it's still a process now. I mean, it's still things I'm always learning and picking up, but those, that first year really was a lot of, you know, a lot of progress. Right. And I would say even like three years into it, I, I think there was, there was quite a bit of a growth that you would, that I would see. You, um, when we first talked before doing the episode on the phone, just to, you know, establish what we wanted to talk about beyond just bridges, you had a really great, uh, a way of connecting bridges to string quartets. Can you, can you elaborate on that here? Oh yeah. That's, um, I, so, you know, I, like you mentioned earlier, I, I, uh, was trained as a classical musician before I went into Lutheran, um, 
uh, went through the conservatory life and uh, I spent a lot of time listening to string quartets um, uh, and um, you know most music uh, people who are very deep into music will, will say that um, a composer's string quartet is some of their best work uh, and I think the reason for that is because you only have four parts to work with um, so you have to you have to distill your ideas down to four parts you have uh, defined parameters that you're working with and um, I think it forces uh, forces the composers to to focus all their energy and focus all their ideas into this one medium um, and I, I do think of bridges often I, I, to me it, it's very much like a string quartet for a luthier because you it takes all these different skills you know when I get done carving a bridge it's my whole bench is covered with tools and it's kind of amazing that this tiny little piece of wood requires so many things and so many different um, different uh, disciplines to be able to master. So I, I, I do think it's, uh, and, and like we said, you know, I said earlier, you can tell so much about a, uh, a luthier's work uh, based on what they do with their bridge. Um, you can tell how sharp, how sharp they make their tools. Uh, you can tell how, what kind of idea they have about a line, um, uh, you know, what kind of mastery they have of their ideas, just how, how, how well they're able to hit certain numbers and parameters that you have to, to make work, like the bridge feet fitting and the string heights and all those kinds of things that the players are going to need uh, to be right on. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a medium that distills everything down to its, to, to very defined rudimentary, uh, not rudimentary, but defined parameters. And you have to, you have to work within those and, and make it happen just like a string quartet. So let's talk, when we talked on the phone before this, you, you had a really good line that where you said it's aesthetics versus acoustics. And I wanted to get into that, but first kind of what is the basis of what a bridge is? Yeah. What does a bridge do? Um, I think uh, the basics of a functioning bridge would basically be something that fits the top of the instrument and has the right string heights. Um, it's not too thick. And uh, the crown of the bridge, uh, meaning where the uh, where the strings uh, touch the bridge, is not too thick. Um, and uh, I think beyond that, uh, the rest of it is is kind of refining it. But I mean, those will those things by themselves will get you a functioning bridge, which is basically something that it's the first thing that the strings touch, the first um, part that takes in the vibrations. Um, before it goes into the into the body of the instrument, so basically that's that's all you need. But then there's all the the nuance that goes from there. There's the but, which can take you a life <laughs> to figure that out. So yeah, so basically, in its essence, a bridge transfers the vibration from the strings to the top of the instrument. Yes, in its simplest form. In the simplest form. And we see many bridges out there that even fail to do that, unfortunately. Um, however, we all strive to at least get there. So you have a bridge that fits. Yes. It's functioning as a bridge. What can you do from there to turn it into what I would call a pro cut bridge or a bridge that's art, you know, artistically cut to the next level to make the instrument the best it can be? Maybe it would make sense to just kind of talk about the process of of, of where I, at least where I, I, I do a bridge. Um, so, you know, I'll start out with a bridge. 
I start out by cut, you know, cleaning it consistent thickness. I on, on violin bridges, for example, I like to finish out at four point two. Okay, uh, four point two millimeters. That is. Um, I I start out I start out with four point three actually because then I figure I'll be taking a tenth of a millimeter off later, and then you have to make sure the feet fit well because this is kind of like the basics of a functioning bridge. So you have good, uh, well-fitting feet, which means not um, just looking good from the outside, but all surfaces and the whole bridge touch, so you can get full transfer of the sound going into the instrument. So you have to make sure that fit is good to begin with, and that's kind of where. So that means not hollowing the feet. Not hollowing the feet, which is a it was gotcha. just convenient to hollow because it looks great on the outside, but you're not you're not getting everything you can get out of that bridge. Full contact. Yes. Yeah. And then I get the string heights, which makes a difference in the arching on how the player is going to play. So these are just kind of mechanics of 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 making a bridge that works. So you can't have some strings having different clearance than the others as the bow mm-hmm. is uh, as a chain of strings, um, because otherwise then you're you're going to um, players going to get hung up there, or they're going to have if you don't have it being uh, playable in that situation. <laughs> yeah, to, more uh, more work from the E string to the A string is not oh, good. It's so hard to describe yeah. this on a uh, so consistent consistent a consistent radius. Let's yes, say there that. consistent there radius. That's good. Just curious, do you use anything to measure that? I have uh, a fingerboard. Uh, I use the fingerboard template. Okay, um, and I have. A, a constant radius of my fingerboard template and i use the the uh i put the uh, bridge up to a lamp and then i Mm -hmm. put the fingerboard template on top of the strings i see uh how the strings are touching yeah and actually what i do is actually get the outside strings the heights and the spacing uh done first then i use calipers and i kind of walk it across the uh i mean i cut out a rough shape of what Right, I'm gonna have, and then I I use uh I get then I, I then I once the outside strings are um are established then I I start working on the inside strings and what I'll do is I'll use my fingerboard template which is a consistent radius to uh, see where the tops of the strings are are touching that um, yeah I, sort of my default position is to make them all equal so it's an equal yeah. radius unless there's a special request like a slightly higher D. Or something like that, and because the bow the bow is touching the top of the strings, that's what the player is going to feel anyhow. Yeah. So then from there, I mean, you're once you get your string heights and your bridge feet fit, um, then you're looking at trying to take wood out of different areas to affect how the bridge is going to how it's going to bend and rock and vibrate. And, you know, for me, there I, I don't have like specific mem- measurements. Um, for most things, there are some things I kind of uh, ankles of the bridge. I have kind of settled on three three point five millimeters. Um, that's a real easy one to test because you can carve a bridge, leaving the ankles a little thick. And um, and maybe we should explain ankles. Ankles being the wood uh, right above the the feet that are touching the uh, top of the instrument for yeah the non luthier listeners. Um, so you can start out by leaving them a little thicker and play the instrument, go back, put a bridge lifter on there, take the bridge out, carve a little bit out of the ankles, stick it back on, play it again, 
it's a really easy experiment to see uh, what it does to the sound. And uh, so I've kind of settled on 3.5 because it seems like I get improvements up to that point. Um, when mm-hmm. I go beyond that, it kind of starts um, starts breaking down. It's like I, it doesn't have the sound that it's supported. Um, but the difference between like four millimeters of the thickness versus like 3.5 is actually quite a bit surprising. It's a, it's a good experiment you can try. Yeah. Um, but the rest of the bridge, I have kind of ranges that I think will work, mm-hmm. um, but usually based on the flexibility of the bridge, uh, which can change from different blank to different blank. So I I will flex the, uh, for, for example, the the, the bridge, the uh, uh, wood between the kidneys yeah, or the little arm coming up between the heart uh, and the kidneys. How thick you leave those um, can matter on how the bridge will rock back and forth. And so when the player... Um, first feels the uh, the note that they're playing, they might uh, talk about how, how easy it is to start the sound. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that depends on the how f- fast they can get that bridge to rock. Now, if it rocks too easily, they'll also notice that and they'll kind of say that this instrument sounds a little too weak. So there's, there's, a, there's definitely a point where you can go too far, but there's a point where it's kind of getting that sweet spot. Um, so I'm always kind of trying to work on getting taking out just enough woods so that there's enough support there in the sound, but it's easy enough to get it started for the player. How much mass you leave above the heart is going to make a big difference on how, how things sound. Some of that you have to, uh, you don't have a choice because your projection is at a certain level. Right. But knowing where your projection is, I, I mean, I should have maybe said, you know, before I even carved the bridge, I, take all those measurements um so if i have a, a a fairly low projection i will take a lot of wood out of the as much wood as possible out of the feet when i'm doing the uh the fitting to yeah. make sure i have enough wood above the heart or vice versa if the if the um projection is rather high i might not take as much wood out of the feet when i'm fitting when you were talking about removing wood from the kidneys to help with the flexibility of the bridge. Yep. Are you talking about removing wood primarily around the waist area, the outside of the kidneys towards the edges, the upper part of the kidneys uh, towards the corners? Yeah, I think uh, it's mostly between the uh, kidneys, the wood between the kidneys, and also the wood. I, I call them arms. Uh, I don't know what everybody else calls them. It's sort of the arm, like, so you have that wood in between the kidneys, and then it kind of, there's a little wood uh, between the uh, heart and the kidney so how that is handled i kind of think of it like a little like a little spring so that spring is going nobody can see this um my hand my hand (laughs) (laughs) max doing the most awesome dance just so you all know (laughs) little bridge dance um so the i I think of it it's like a spring and it kind of moves back and forth from the treble to the bass side right yeah yeah where it's rocking And the player, when they're playing and they're trying to get that bridge moving, you want to have that not, you want to have the right amount of resistance that's not too much. So they can, they can still dig in, but they can still get that bridge to move. Mm -hmm. If you leave too much wood there and it's too thick and the bridge is too stiff, it's not going to, you're not going to be able to sink into that note. It's going to feel like you're kind of playing on top of the string, like it's just skating. So, but I, I this kind of goes back to the, the the aesthetics too. When we were talking about how I, I said that a good looking bridge usually sounds better, I think the the shape of the kidney 
the way that kind of plays the upper part of the kidney coming around and the heart. Once again, people can't see my fingers. This is a really hard thing to talk about on just a, <laughs> a program, but the way that the, the kidney kind of comes down and the heart comes up, right? The shape of, of that little arm that's left over the wood that's left over after you're done carving. I also do think that makes a difference. That was a measurement that Tom, uh, in his class, uh, that he used, uh, it was one of the changes that one of the groups made. We really thin that area out oh, okay. to make it super flexible. Um, and then also narrowing the waist too, but what, what was the result? I'd have to go back and look, but it depended on the instrument, but ultimately it's that flexibility you did. Do you, you do hit a point to where the flexibility is too much and the instrument sort of became lifeless or brought out yeah. too many like high mids or, um, maybe became too reedy or something, you know, um, yeah. kind yeah, of a exactly. point of no return for <laughs> diminishing returns. Yeah. yeah. That's a great way to say it. Cause I think that that's kind of, I, I always think of getting, you have to get close to that point of, of going over the line mm -hmm. and then, and then stopping. Yeah, and that's when that's when you get a good sounding bridge, and also, uh, you know, uh, it actually the same kind of concept works for the way it it looks too. Because I always think if you're taking that, like a line that you're working with aesthetically, like you maybe take the thinness of the feet to a certain um, uh, thickness. Uh, if you, you, I always think how to make it look delicate and beautiful, you almost have to take that wood almost to going too much. And then stopping, and I always think that's that's kind of where you're you're hitting that sweet spot. So you don't like your bridges to wear platforms, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No platform shoes. <laughs> no Herman Munster bridges. Yeah. Um, I mean, those are the those are the main things. I mean, that I'm kind of looking for, like basics in uh, in a bridge making. It, you know, if I'm, I'm trying to make it sound acoustically the best it can. Um, I'm paying a lot of attention to that wood between the kidneys, uh, the arms. Sometimes I've actually worked with taking, and it, it also kind of depends on the, the piece of wood. So like the, one of those arms might be slightly thinner than the other one. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked around with that too before trying to make it so that it, it will um, rock evenly. And you can kind of do this just by putting your, like holding the bridge with your um, thumbs on the on the bottom of the feet and your uh, index fingers on the top and kind of pushing on it either side and kind of feeling how it's, you can, you can kind of feel how, how a bridge blank's rocking while you're carving it. Yeah. Uh, so when people ask me questions like, well, how much, how much wood do you, you know, what measurement do you go for between the kidneys? And I, and the, the answer is it, it depends. I I've gone as thin as like 14.25, um, about that, that thin to all the way to like 15 and a half or 15.75 or something like that. Um, uh, which for our non-luthier listeners, uh, the difference, you know, of a, of a, a mill, millimeter and a half is, is huge in the violin world. Yeah. It's not like, uh, you know, so I can have a lot of variation between blanks. It depends on, it depends on what I start with. And, and also like, uh, now that I'm getting warmed up here, uh, before I even start doing the feet, you know, the first thing I do is that thickness thing in the bridge and I start fitting the feet before I even do that. I, I pick the piece of wood out, which is a huge part of the, the whole process and, and trying to find a piece of wood that 
has a, a singing quality. I actually scratched the wood. I, I put the bridge up to my ear and I scratched the, uh, or I shouldn't say scratch, it's more like rub with my fingers, mm -hmm. um, rub the other side of the wood and I, I listened for it. And uh, if you find a, a good piece of wood, it'll have a singing quality to it. Um, it's the same kind of thing I do when I'm looking for tone wood uh, for making an instrument too. When you're selecting blanks, do you bounce back and forth between brands or are you kind of a, an all bear only or a Milo Stom only, or, um, you know, I've, uh, I, I, I usually tend to use Aubert's, um, Aubert Deluxe, but I have played around with some different, different quality, uh, different, different brands. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find, okay, so let's just say you're presented with an instrument that you're striving for a certain tone. I mean, sometimes do you choose a harder blank over a softer one or vice versa based on what you're going for? Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's even going to the point of like the extreme would be making a bridge blank from scratch. We actually have some great uh, wood uh, that my business partner has a, a huge stock of it. It's very, very hard. Um, it's, it's wonderful bridge wood. Um, and we'll, we'll actually make a bridge from scratch sometimes. Uh, especially for the if there's parameters that are are unusual, like if there's a really wide base, like the bass bar is is really set out really far on an instrument. I've had a couple of violas where we've made custom bridges. It tends to be on violas and cellos uh, that we do it, but um, you know, and, and it's usually like a last resort. Like people will come to me because they've tried everything else, and yeah. now they, now they want to see what this will do and. And we, we've, we've gone as far as to do that. So, so I have to say, I've never cut a bridge straight from a blank piece of wood, but it's on my to-do list because I think it would be fascinating. Do you enjoy it? <laughs> um, <laughs> I really have to know. Uh, I, I would, yeah, I, I'd say I do. Um, there's a little bit of, uh, pulling your hair out too. I mean, made from scratch biscuits are always better than Bisquick. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I like, because uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, uh, and maybe you're going to get to this uh, question or something, but um, you know, I spent uh, time drawing bridges when I was trying to learn. Um, and I think it's still a good exercise to do now to really get the, the concepts in your head. Um, so, I, so I think it's, it's kind of fun because when you start with a blank, you have, you're kind of limited to what that blank's going to unless you have bridges produced for your specifications. But um, the nice thing about when I, when I do a bridge blank, I just essentially, uh, you know, from scratch, I just have a piece of wood and I'm, I essentially just draw a bridge on there and erase lines and draw another, another one. And um, it, it's a, it's a pretty satisfying process, I think. Cause, cause then you can kind of, you can kind of try something different, you know? Yeah. And uh, kind of stretch your, uh, stretch your ideas. So one question just in regards to cutting the bridge, and this is something I get asked all the time, is it lines or specs on the front or the back? And does that affect the tone and the stability? Sure. Um, I, yeah, I mean, the, you talk about the lines on the back. Yeah. Specs on the front. Um, those are just the medullary rays, um, which will tell you how the grain is stacked up on the bridge. So if you have... If if the the back of the bridge is essentially flat, except for mm -hmm. the top, which I think we might talk about in a minute, um, and the front is where it's curved more, um, 
so if the back is has has lines where the medullary rays are are coming down like rain, then then you're gonna then you're gonna have grain being stacked up evenly perpendicular. Gotcha. Yeah, or parallel to the top. So that's Which, ultimately it's not really lines or specs. It's really just making sure that the grain is stacked up parallel to the top and not in an angle or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, because mentally a razor just it's just the rays that come and they feed the tree. The, ah. the so if you if you cut if you make a cut on a piece of wood, you know depending on where you cut, those rays are going to be coming out in different. Um, uh, expressions and different angles. Um, but if you have them so that, cause they're, you have the pith of the tree and the rays are going to radiate out from that pith, you know, meaning ah. the pith, the very center of the tree. Uh, so if you make a cut where the grain lines that are running up and down the tree are stacked up parallel, the rays that radiate out from the center of the tree to feed the tree, are going yeah. to be coming down like rain. Gotcha. And it's hard. It's hard to find a piece of wood that like is perfect on that. But you know, it's 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 just another thing to think about. So once you have the balance and everything feeling good on the instrument, you have the flexibility feeling good. What cuts can we do, or have you seen done that aren't so much for the flexibility of the bridge and more for the pleasure of? the luthier cutting it or the future musicians to experience? Sure. Um, so I, some people get really uh, opinionated if you listen to them talk about bridges and, and, and sometimes you can pretty much figure out quickly that they're, they're criticizing a bridge because it doesn't look like what they carve. And I, I try to stay away from that. I, cause the, to me, it's like the, there are, are some universal ideas I can look at a bridge that might be a way, a very much different style than what I would do, and I can still see if it's a good, a good looking bridge or not. And I think there are a couple things, um, you know, when I was talking, you were asking earlier about uh, when did I start becoming interested in in bridges, you know, and I said when I started working for Jerry and and started carving a lot of bridges, and I I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is it that makes this or this bridge or that bridge a, a beautiful bridge. And I talked to Jerry about this and he said something that really stuck in my brain. And that was making sure when you, you would have an idea. So you have a line that is flowing on the bridge. Um, you want to make sure that that line goes from smaller radiuses to larger radiuses or larger radiuses to smaller radiuses in a continuous fashion until the idea is completed. Hmm. Um, I'm looking at Catherine's face and she's <laughs> looking <laughs> deep confused. Deep in thought. Um, deep in so thought. <laughs> I, I'll, try to, I'll try to explain that some more. Um, so the so if you have a line, so say you go from smaller a smaller radius to a larger radius and then you small again and then large, you're going to see that as kind of an interruption in the line rather than having it be continuously go from small small to large kind of like a scroll if you have yeah. a scroll that's doing it and it's doing it in a fashion that's completing the idea i mean you can look and he said this to me that stuck in my head he said if you and i started kind of looking at the world in a different way because i would look at design um he mentioned if you see a 
bumper on a car that looks very beautiful you'll you'll probably be able to to to, to look at it and see that it, it does the same thing it goes from smaller to larger or larger to smaller in a in a in a flow and and people will say well that's just you know that's that's what a lot of people when they carve bridges they'll just be doing that intuitively they're just looking to see that the line is carved with a nice flow but that's what's actually happening and it helped me to kind of quantify it in a very distinct way like what is it exactly that's making that line look beautiful so i think that's 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 one of the ideas on so so every time i look at a bridge i would say i'd always look to see you know oh is that you know how is that line cut and that's you know that's that's the overarching thing is saying that somebody finished their idea in such a way with a nice flow yeah and the other thing i think is like it's so it's so it's it's in a way that so when you look at a you look at a bridge it's like your eye doesn't get really hung up on anything you you look from one you look at the arch between the feet and then you kind of your eye kind of falls around there and it kind of comes around on the on the foot and the toe and then it kind of jumps up to the kidney and then your eye kind of falls around the kidney and shapes around in the little wing and then jumps up to the heart and you, you never really stop anywhere you just kind of keep looking through that whole bridge and the way the way the lines all play together and i also think it helps to think that it kind of hangs together so if you do something where you have a really angular kind of cut to to the area opened up in the arch where it comes around the foot and then and then your kidney is really round that's kind of incongruent and it doesn't really make sense so i, I always think about making those lines kind of uh they they, they got to hang together so it looks like the same person carved it and the same person was having the same thoughts about the whole bridge yeah it's like a composition well it is a composition really as we talked about at the beginning of this <laughs> going, back to the <laughs> yeah, going back to the string quartet idea yeah it's, it's, yeah so you have yeah same idea i mean you have a, you have a theme and one you know the, the violin plays a theme and then the viola takes it over and maybe changes it slightly and um yeah but it all kind of hangs together and you can hear it when it yeah when it doesn't hang it doesn't you can hear it and the same kind of thing with a bridge like you look at a bridge and you're like, oh this thing this thing this thing hangs together or it doesn't yeah with those little cuts that we do at the very end, the cham chamfers going up the sides, sometimes people will bevel the feet, the cut cutting away parts of the wing. Do you think that has much of a play on sound or is that a good way to remove some excess weight on it or is it just aesthetic? I, I would, you know, I don't really know, to be honest. I would guess that it's nice to remove weight, but I would I would think that those kinds of cuts probably have less to do with sound and more to do with aesthetics. Okay. What about finishing? Does using different finishing products, so for example, Danish oil or drying oil versus shellac, do you think that plays in on the tone of the bridge at all? I use, um, I, I actually don't finish them with shellac or any kind of um, varnish kind of uh, Danish oil, shellac, anything like that. I use, um, I actually rub, I have a carpet that I have all kinds of different uh, pigments and dry pigments. Um, I turn and it's on a backing, uh, like a, a plywood backing in the carpet. It's a smooth, real, real dense carpet. Um, and I have all these pigments. I'll charge it up with pigments. Uh, you know, every once in a while I'll redo it. Um, I think it's a, 
I can go grab it because I have it written what I put on there. Uh, mostly raw sienna, a little bit of burnt umper, and a pinch of Van Dyke brown. And um, so I turned the carpet upside down. Um, I've already sanded the, the bridge to where I, you know, I've already done the shaping of the arch and all that kind of stuff. And I've sanded that bridge down to where, to about 320. And I rubbed the bridge with the carpet underneath so all the pigments kind of fall into the bridge. And then I take the bridge and I use a, uh, one of those uh, pads that you get the, um, they're like kind of like Scotch Bright pads. They're the white ones, the finest, the mm. finest grade. And then I basically burnish all those pigments in to the wood, which then ends up having kind of a shine to it, which makes it look like it's been varnished with shellac or something. Um, but the nice thing about that is that I'm not, I'm not really adding anything to the, the bridge except for some pigments that fall into the pores. Yeah. Um, um, it, I mean, my, my basic thought is that if you finish it with something like Danish oil or something, you're, you're, you're basically dampening the sound, which maybe that's what you want. I don't know. But, um, you know, that would be, I, I think that's what the result you would get. I think a, a spritz of shellac of some kind, like you, especially if you use an airbrush, I know I've kind of thought about experimenting. I've heard some people do, uh, using, uh, like Nussbaum, um, walnut stain. Uh, that they kind of spray onto the bridge and then seal it in with shellac and doing some different things. I've, I've kind of thought about experimenting with some of that, but my current method is what I, what I mentioned with the dry pigments. Do you think the finishing could help protect the bridge when you're say traveling like to quite humid places or um, things like that to make it more stable? Sure. I mean, it's kind of the same idea that, when people want to finish the insides of their violins, I, I think it just slows down the um, how the wood would absorb moisture. I would think um, I would think it it would make a difference. Yeah, um, but I don't I don't usually worry too much about that. So Matt, do you stamp your bridges at all? And if you do, is it do you heat up the the iron beforehand? Are you using ink? Um, I use soot essentially, and I do stamp them. I know there's some. Uh, some of my European colleagues have been pretty um, vocal about not stamping, and I respect that. I'm, I to me, it's always like nice to have a a stamp. It kind of makes the uh, I, part of it might be just because I'm used to seeing a stamp, um, but I always think a a stamp kind of finishes off the look to me um, and how it's done. I I, I use uh, soot essentially. I take a candle and I. Um, I clean off the, uh, the, the stamp first with alcohol and then I go and then I run it on the flame and then the soot kind of, uh, builds up on the stamp. And that's what I use to push into the wood um, to get my mark. And, and then in, inevitably you spend, uh, a few hours, uh, carving a bridge and then you stamp it crookedly or something. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see people when they're choosing the fonts for their bridge, choosing something that reflects the the sight lines on the bridge, you know, those curves and everything oh, yeah. we were talking about. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, you know, like every violin maker, I'll, I'll be opinionated. Um, I, I think uh, something with serifs always looks nice. I mean, I think a lot of font nerds say the same thing, but I, I usually like something that's a little more traditional uh, when people use really something too, like too artsy fartsy kind of uh, fonts for their bridge stamps. I, I, I tend to not like that as much. But something classic with serifs, so I think, always looks pretty nice. 
So you're not using comic stands, I'm assuming. (laughs) 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 Do you have any recommendations of where someone might acquire a bridge stamp? Um, Yeah, I don't um, really know. I know uh, there's a company called Stamp Yours um, that I know a lot of people use. They're pretty um, flexible as far as like whatever designs you want to do. I mean, they can do anything you want, really. But I know a lot of bow makers are using them now, too. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that, that, yeah. I think like anything that bow makers use is probably a good thing uh, for stamping a bridge. So for new luthiers out there, people who are budding or even people who just want to get better, what would you say after seeing so many people come through and, you know, grow up and become luthiers, what would you say are the do's and don'ts? What are the things that you find people do consistently that they shouldn't? But then what are the things that you wish people did more of? Um, so I, um, I can break that up into a couple things. So the one thing I would say is, uh, the relief that you do on the back of the bridge, I think does, uh, it, it makes a difference in sound, but it also makes a difference in the longevity of the bridge. And with this, you're talking about not making the back flat. You're talking about yeah. taking wood off the back. Yes. I actually do more relief. I, I got, I started off by doing a little relief. And as time went on, I started doing more relief, especially on cellos. And what I mean by that is bringing, instead of having it be completely, it's flat almost up until the top of the bridge where you're doing a little bit of a relief um, on the back so that it brings where the strings tension um, comes. It doesn't, it's not in the middle, but it's closer um, mm. to the middle. Um, I think it's kind of uh, goes back to what we were talking about with the stacking of the lines of the, the grain lines. If you bring that force coming through the bridge more, so it's not it's not loading it up on the back. Um, and also, it I think it keeps the um, bridge from warping. I find it helps with fine tuners, like to combat yeah. that that pull that's coming from the fine tuners constantly. Yeah. And also making sure the grooves are well lubricated as well with graphite to make sure the strings are sliding over and they're not. Um, and actually uh, a little tidbit, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I did talk to uh, the string techs at uh, one of the conventions and I realized I've been doing this anyhow, but they they did uh, some studies on, on notch widths of the strings and found that you got a much better sound. Actually, if you, uh, if you make your string notch slightly, uh, slightly larger than the string, so the string, even though so it has just, just a little bit of move, movement to room, we're talking, no, sorry, a little bit of room to move, um, to have some movement. Um, and we're talking like like 0.2 millimeters, like a, like a tenth of a millimeter on either side, uh, or maybe even less. Um, if you, if, so what I, I have these pillar files, and when I cut, I measure the string. And so if the string's 0.85 millimeters or something, I will use a one millimeter pillar file and make my groove. But then the string sits in there, and it kind of has a little bit of room to just do this. The scientist guy from uh, from Tomastic, you know, I don't know the engineer, I guess, not scientist, but um, was telling me that he, they had done a study of, or you know, where they were comparing all the different groove widths, and they actually said they found a much more open, uh, with more overtones when they had the groove be slightly very interesting, slightly larger, which I thought was an interesting tidbit. Uh, but going back to the um, uh, the relief in the back, uh, if you don't relieve it enough, it will um, it, it, it's more prone to warping. Um, but I also do think that 
changing the center of the force of where the string is pushing down on the bridge makes a better, uh, a more stable bridge by move by having enough relief in the back. And also just telling your customer to pay attention to the bridge and make sure it's not leaning or anything. That's that's always the the large the the number one thing that can make a bridge last or not. It's just keeping an eye on that. And I always train my uh, customers when I do a bridge. I show them how to adjust it, and if they if it's pretty obvious that they're not going to feel com- comfortable doing it, mm-hmm. then I tell them just just bring it in as soon as you see it. Uh, people also make little gauges that. Uh, maybe go from the fingerboard to the bridge. Um, I've done that for more twitchy customers to make sure that they can they can put their bridge. They can make sure their bridge is in the same spot every time they change strings. But the biggest thing I would say, like if you're trying to learn how to how to carve bridges, to me the biggest thing, the biggest wasted time is people trying to carve a bridge and having no idea where they're going. Mm-hmm. So just carving away, and you don't really have an end an end game in sight. You'll spend just hours carving a bridge. When I see people when they're learning, they carve and they carve and they carve and they don't really, they stay in the same place for a long time. So my my suggestion is to draw shapes, spend some time drawing kidneys, drawing all the different shapes of the bridge, and just get it really set in your head. Because if you can if you can draw it, you can you can carve it eventually. It's the same same thing. You just have to get that. You have to get an idea of, in your head of where you're going. And if you have a if you have an end goal in sight. It doesn't take you very long to to finish it. You don't spend as much time just you know spinning your wheels. Um, so that's that's like when people are learning. That's the number one thing I tell them: spend some time drawing. Yeah, the time that you spend that will save you so much time carving bridges later. And then and then when you're when you're in the middle of carving a bridge, and you're looking at say the kidney, and you're like, why doesn't this look right? Rather than just going at it and starting to carve, look at it. And really think about like, well, it's this like, and be very specific mm-hmm. about it. Well, it's this area right here that this line dips down here. It doesn't look right. I need to fix this. And be very intentional about knowing what you want to do. Maybe even take your pencil and make a mark. This is where I'm gonna do something with it. You know, rather than just, oh, this doesn't look right, and I'm just gonna start carving. Right. So for the musicians, you've cut them a nice, beautiful looking bridge. Everything is lovely. It sounds fantastic. How do we teach them to keep that bridge alive? How do we keep this bridge alive for years to come? So it's like uh, when I, I, it's when everyone, when they get a new bridge cut, um, I show them how to adjust it. And like I said earlier, the biggest, uh, the biggest issue is having a bridge warp because it's leaning. What it's not up, it's not straight up and down where it's supposed to be. So I, I, I show them the violin looking at it. On you know putting it in their lap and looking at it, and I say this is where the bridge, you know, needs to look. This is how it should be, you know. And a lot of times it doesn't actually almost doesn't usually doesn't look um, ninety degrees in the back. A lot of times it looks like a little bit less than that. Sometimes there's like an optical illusion depending on what side you're looking at. Um, but I tell them when I hand it to them, I said this is this is the way it's supposed to look. And then I show them, I have them put their. This is gonna be really tough to describe on a podcast, but. I tell them to put their fingers underneath the fingerboard. They're like pinky and like ring fingers, like having the violin kind of sideways, put the violin up against their body, look at it, put their two thumbs opposing, and then they can move the the bridge either way, but they have their, their thumbs opposing each other 
as they're adjusting. So they're not, when they're moving, they're not, there's, there's not going to be a chance to just have it all of a sudden slide because you have your other thumb there. Mm. Is that going to be clear enough? I have no idea. That's going to be hard to explain. But we'll Everyone judge it by the comments. comments. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> I'll get phone calls. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's how I tell them to, to do it. Um, I know a lot of luthiers put the vinyl line like, like um, straight up and down kind of and just move it. Um, I, I get more nervous about customers doing that because you can really slip easily, um, which is why I tell them to put it sideways. So I, I'm just pretty – I think it's just being clear as to show them how, showing them how to adjust it and, and then assessing if they're going to feel – if they're going to, number one, have the capability to do that, and number two, if they're going to feel comfortable enough um doing it and if if any if either one of those uh the answer is no then i just tell them look at this bridge right now and if it doesn't look like this call me bring it in it won't cost you anything i'll take i'll take 10 seconds and i'll i'll adjust it for you so tell us about the as we're wrapping up tell us about the pesky little string sleeves do we use them or don't we use them um, I don't use them. Uh, I just, I cut them off because I'm putting a parchment underneath the, the E anyhow. So, um, Great. but there are, they are handy. If you say you need to raise your string just slightly or something like that, then I yeah. put it underneath, but you don't want to have the, uh, you want to have, uh, um, the string sleeve, more of it on the tailpiece side than you'd want on the playing side to make sure they're not, they're playing. If you have that, uh, sleeve really far over it might get in the way of uh, bowling close to the bridge uh, sometimes that added buzz or muted thing works <laughs> tell me this one last thing i cannot land a basketball into a basketball hoop to save my life or into the goal i can't kick a soccer ball into the goal i mean i'm pretty good at cornhole but why is it every freaking time i cut off that string sleeve it winds up in the f-hole every time <laughs> I mean, I'm so consistent with it. <laughs> I I think he just described everybody's experience. <laughs> I thought I was the only one. This has been fantastic. Unless there are any more do's and don'ts or words to our players, um, I could sit and talk bridges with you all day. So, you know. It's an easy topic to keep talking about. Yeah. So. Uh, it's been a, it's been great. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to have you back. I'll have to think of something else to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, challenge accepted. Take care. All right, we'll see you. This is this is this is this is and this is the well, dang, Catherine, I feel like we've talked about bridges for a long time today, and our listeners may be tired of them, but guess what? You just got to keep living with them, studying them, learning about them, perfecting them. It's a journey. It is. Sometimes you just got to build a bridge and get over it. You just have to build a bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for those of you who want to research further, we have mentioned a few resources. Gerard Kilbride's website, which is violinbridges.co.uk. There are so many bridges to look at there. You can also look up the violin bridge competition that they do. If you're interested in really hands-on stuff, go to Learning Trade Secrets. Take Tom Crowen's Advanced Violin Setup course. You're going to get a lot of bridge action there. On the interwebs, you can look up 
Joseph Curtin's website. He's written some great articles, Strad Magazine articles, Ryan Hayes' article on cutting a violin bridge on Triangle Strings website, and then even just the bridge companies, Milostam, Despo, Joseph Teller, Albert, they all have resources on their website. Explore, 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 learn, learn, learn. It's great. We're all going to be amazing bridge cutters after this. And keep an eye on our socials because we may post more info as time progresses. Catherine, thank you so much for being the co-host today. We look forward to having you on Omo more, maybe in the hot seat someday, learning about your travels, guiding us through more. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for leading the wagon and pulling that along. Yes, yes. Now we'll take it back and safely return it. And until next time, everybody, remember, love can build a bridge between your heart and mine. Love can build a bridge. Don't you think it's time? Don't you think it's time? <laughs> Omo is an all luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Brandon Gottman, Jason Peoples, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.